Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Today's episode is sponsored by Yext Answers. Does your website help people buy or make them bounce? When someone searches and can't find the right answer they need, they bounce all right, usually over to a search engine that starts with a G. But over there, they get bombarded with ads, not the answers they need. The customer loses, your business loses. There has to be a better way. With Yext Answers, there is. Yext Answers offers a powerful search engine to your website so your customers get an official answer to every question. And that means they're more likely to buy. You can now try Yext Answers for free. Just go to yext.co.uk forward slash eat sleep. That's yext, Y-E-X-T dot forward slash eat sleep. Start giving your customers answers, not ads. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Ahoy there, I'm Bruce Taisley. Hope everyone's well. Tier two calling here. I think we're going into tier three by lunchtime. There's like vague talk of a tier four. Is that just Wales? Thank you for joining us today. Seth Godin today. I mean, it's always good to have someone as brainy and as esteemed as Seth Godin on. I've probably got another couple of episodes before the end of the year. The one next week is going to be about humour, using humour. Really lovely conversation with two women who run a course at Stanford University about making people smile at work. It's actually, a, I loved that discussion and their book is brilliant. So that's next week. And then there's a couple of little bits that I've recorded with other people that I'm going to put together as well. So I think the humour one might be a good one to, you know, you've got those chores where you've got Wrap presents. Not sure how much you need to do that these days uh, when maybe if you're not seeing people over Christmas or you've got to do, you've got to do some chores, peel some vegetables. I always find a good podcast does the trick. I, I generally, my podcast tastes are generally American politics. I'm wondering actually if I'm, I'm going to need to listen to less American politics last year. The, my interest in American politics has always been about this sense of imminent peril that if I take my eye off it and something goes 
catastrophically wrong, it kind of feels like it might have been my fault. That's like the the vague guilt that goes in. Maybe maybe with um, a change of leadership, I won't have to do that. Although plenty of things to be anxious about there. So if you are listening to this and you if you want to know how to make your work better, I do a newsletter. You'll see a link of that at the top of the page. That's called Make Work Better. And that goes out to thousands and thousands of people every week. Always get lovely response from that. So uh, if you are interested, please do subscribe to that. Click the, the link at the top of the page. Okay, so today's guest is Seth Godin. Seth Godin is a former book packager, is the way that he describes it, and now has become one of the most iconic thought leaders in the world, really touching whole areas of marketing, digital communication, and today, creativity. He's written a new book, which is called The Practice, which is broadly designed to steal the intrigue about creative work He believes that creativity is this thing that we construe with mythical, God-given powers. And we say that, you know, creativity is all about you are creative or you're not creative. And his experience, he's written a blog post every day for two decades. Uh, His experience is that creativity is just like a muscle. And so that's the practice. Um, I'll be back after the show just to talk you through my views on the book. But um, uh, Seth's written, I think, 20-something books. I, I featured him in a previous podcast. And so I gave him a fuller introduction, a fuller a fuller sort of survey through his work in that. And I've linked to that at the top of the show notes. At the end of the show, Seth gives some extraordinary recommendations for what he would suggest people read or watch this year. And so I've linked to those in the notes as well. So um, if you are sort of trying to grab a pencil, if you click the the notes part of your podcast app, you'll see that I've given links to all of those that you can just tap them there and then. So here's Seth Godin telling you how you can become more creative. Seth, hello, sir. I hope the global pandemic is finding you okay. Where are you and how are you today? I'm just outside of New York City. It's been a slog, but I've been super lucky. A lot of people have had it way harder than I have, but we'll get to the other side for sure. If we do get the opportunity to look back fondly and think that maybe 2020, despite all its curses, gave us something, what positive thing do you think it might have left us with? You know, it's uh, there are layers and layers and layers here. Industrialism has been the narrative of my lifetime, all of our lifetimes, that for 100,000 years, there wasn't industrialism. There was, you know, life. And then we figured out this system where we could make stuff with great productivity and efficiency. And we organized everything in our lives around it. School, media, how we spend our day, how we eat, what we eat, all of it is about feeding the factory. And I think in this moment, partly because so many of us have benefited from the efficiencies and partly because all of us at the same time were staring mortality in the face. There's a wonder of, is this really what we're here for? Is it really the highest thing we can do with a day, a week, a month, or a year of our life to show up and be cogs in the system? And I think a lot of people have gone through this year relieved at the insulation from the outside world that we get because we have privilege and tools and resources, but also 
questioning whether that's the point. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think when I look at the world right now, I'm really just inspired with young people's increasing engagement with politics, with ecology. There seems to be something fundamental changing in terms of young people becoming activists. It's actually really inspiring to see. I'm not sure if I'm seeing that because I'm looking for it or whether that's a real trend that's genuinely taking place. But it's, it's one thing that's giving me pause for hope. Yeah, I think there's a generational shift going on for a couple of reasons. The first one is that um, baby boomers, and I'm a, uh, on the young end of that, have made everything about them always. Since 1965, the narrative of everything has been what is in it for the baby boomers. And many baby boomers are now passing away and they're looking at climate change and saying, well, eh, not my problem. And so finally, the focus is shifting away from people who are over 60 and a young generation is coming and saying, what do you mean it's okay that the earth is going to be gone? No, it's not. And they, uh, it's long overdue, are speaking up and saying, we can do better than this. Yeah, I, I witnessed that as well. Maybe I'm an optimist and... You know, optimists by their very nature are constantly disappointed by the reality of events. But I'm taking that as as my reason to be hopeful for 2020. So the reason why we're talking today is that I think you've covered one of the themes that people contact me most often and ask for my guidance on, and that's creativity. It's, you know, how can we be more creative? And I was intrigued. You've just written a book about creativity, about shipping, um, called The Practice, about shipping creative work. And I guess, first, firstly, is that you're an immensely prolific man yourself, immensely, uh, you, you produce a high volume of creativity yourself. You, I think you've posted for 7,000 successive days on your blog, which is, I guess, the, the lesson you're seeking to teach us here, that doing something and practicing doing something is the route in. But tell me this, before we sort of dive in, how do you decide when something's going to be a blog post and then when something's going to be a book? So I used to be in the business of making books. I was a book packager. I did 120 books, a book a month. Uh, I used to wake up in the morning saying, I need to make a book so I can make a living. I stopped doing that a really long time ago. Making a book is, a, as you know, a Herculean effort, not just the writing, but then afterwards, all the people who trusted you you got to make sure the book gets the people who want to read it. And so I only write a book as a last resort. And it's so much easier to write a blog post, which will reach 10 times as many people. And I can be done with it in a day and I can go on to the next thing. This one wouldn't let me go. And it wouldn't let me go because it's both deep and personal and universal all at the same time. Uh, it's deep because creativity is not about writing or painting or dance. It's any human activity might not work that's generous. And it's universal because if you have a job where you are asked to do something creative, A, you have a better job than most, and B, you might be struggling with how to do that really well because it's not in a playbook. If I could write down what I need you to do, I would find someone cheaper than you to do it. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast benefit from being in a job where they're expected to be creative but bristle at the fact that they're asked to do something that might not work, which is scary at work because everything we've been taught from a young age is never do something that might not work. 
And so you set out to explain in your book that creativity isn't, I think from one point you say that Bob Dylan described how one song came to him like a ghost that visited him. And you're really keen to disabuse us of that idea that creativity isn't this remarkable thing that some of us are blessed with, but rather it's something that all of us can attain, acquire and really season, I guess. Yeah, it's a skill, which is such good news. It's such good news because skills are choices. They're attitudes. They're choices. You can learn them. And I don't know how to go through the world believing some people got touched by his noodly appendage and suddenly are magically creative, but then it will go away. No, that's absurd. It's not fire from the sky that you catch. It's a choice. And you can choose to do it or not. Right. Let me jump in, though, and, and just ask you one question as we get going, which is, you know, sometimes we hear talk about creativity being collective. Sometimes we hear about talk about creativity being individual. Susan Cain in her book, Choir, she talks about creativity as this solitary thing. It's, it's founded in solitude. And yet, you know, quite often when we imagine a creative environment, it's about people banging their heads together about ideas colliding it's about sort of discourse I think a lot of us this year have probably thought about this year and thought we missed the creative buzz of offices so can you just clarify that how far does creativity sit individually on us and how much is it a collective thing well um that's a great question people don't usually talk about this some folks have decided to acquire and hone the skill of organizing group creativity. So my friend Chris Meyer, who just passed away, was a master at this. He would get a dozen bank executives into a room, and you would have guessed that they had not one creative nickel between them. And by the end of the day, they had reinvented something that no one was even willing to look at because Chris could set the table for that to occur. There are other people who need to lock themselves in a room and then they come out later with a thing. And some people, like the painter Hilma Af Klimt, she painted 10,000 paintings over 40 years and wouldn't let anyone even see them until after she was dead. And so she didn't even want audience approval as fuel. So it's all over the map. But mm. what, what we know is like all skills, you can get better at it. And if you want to be the person who enables creativity in a group, that is a rare skill, and it's there if you want it. Okay. So next year, we're sitting, we're reflecting on 2021, and we're saying we were more creative in 2021 than we were in 2020. What would have been the steps we took in that year that sits between where we are now and, and where we're going to be? What would be the steps we, we need to take to sit back and reflect on a year spent creatively? Well, you need to develop a practice because if you don't develop a practice, then you're just sloppy and hoping to get lucky, waiting for the muse to touch you. And what does it look like? Is this, is this a daily practice? It might be. It depends. And it, if we, we can begin with a simple one. If you want to get good at uh, dentistry, you should go to work every day as a dentist. That seems very straightforward, yeah. right? If you want to write uh, a thriller novel, you should probably read Ian Fleming. You should probably read Lee Child. You should understand what came before. That's part of your practice to, to see the genre, right? Mm -hmm. um, if 
you want to do almost any sort of creative work, you should figure out where you're going to find the resilience for when it doesn't work. Because if you need reassurance to keep going, I can't find you enough reassurance to make that happen. How do you train so that you don't need reassurance and you still keep going? How can you learn to see the world as it is? How can you make better decisions? These are all skills that are part of your practice. If you say, I want to make it in the music business, the worst thing you can do is get a job at a record label stuffing envelopes or filing things. You're not in the music business. You're in the secretarial pool. What you should do is say, I'm going to gig, maybe online. I'm going to post a song every day, right? Maybe I'm going to figure out how not to wait for a magic song to arrive from someone else. I'm going to learn to write them. How will I know I'm writing good songs? Because I will create a circle of people and I will publish it and publish it and publish it. These are all part of a practice. And what I find is that people who have a practice, amazingly, folks think they're creative. And people who don't have a practice, what a surprise, people think they're not. Okay. So, so okay. Interesting. So, people start a practice. And I guess one of the things that goes through their head is they worry about feedback. They worry about what people will say as they get going. But feedback is a vital part of that process. So, And you talk about... Actually, it's a really important thing to understand that you're not trying to please everyone. You're trying to please a specific audience. Yes, this is huge. First part, smallest viable audience. Nobody, even the Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan, reaches everyone. Not even close. That a million people would be a home run for almost any creative person. That's only one out of every 7,000 people on earth. Ignore the other 6,999. They're not here for you. They're not speaking your language. They're not looking for what you've got. That is critical. And then the second part is when feedback arrives, filter it in two ways. One, is this feedback from someone who's in the right group or is this feedback from someone I don't care about? Because if it's feedback from someone you don't care about, you must ignore it. I haven't read my Amazon reviews in 10 years. And the reason is because... I've never met an author who said, I read all my one-star reviews and now I'm a better author, right? It doesn't help. Someone gives uh, you know, a, a great a, a Harper Lee, a one-star review for To Kill a Mockingbird. It's not because it was a bad book. It's because it wasn't for them. Okay, fine. Don't read it. And then the second piece is among people who it is for, some of them are good at giving feedback and some of them aren't. Don't listen to the people who aren't good at giving feedback. Because that it also is a skill that requires domain knowledge and practice. So what we end up with is almost all the feedback we're getting isn't worth anything. But if we're smart, we can find the good feedback and embrace it, lean into it and bathe in it, because that is what will make us better. Okay, so when people are choosing the field that they go into, should people expect there to, to, there to be a calling should they, should they know consciously what area they're going to create in? Or is there some experimentation there too? Oh, this is, this is such a good question. Okay. So um, if Van Gogh had lived in the 1400s, he wouldn't have been an impressionist oil painter. And if he lived today, who knows, maybe he'd be a computer programmer, but he wouldn't be an impressionist oil painter. There's nothing in our DNA that drives us to do a particular form of work because those are modern, they're cultural artifacts. Uh, I don't think we have a calling. I don't think we are chosen. The great 
philosopher Dolly Parton, I wrote down her quote. She said, uh, I just heard this the other day. She said, find out who you are and do it on purpose. I hate this. I don't think it's true. <laughs> My version is do it on purpose and find out who you are. Right. Because there's certain things that we are wired to want. We want approval from a certain kind of person, but not a different kind of person. We want a certain kind of tension, but not a different kind of tension. We want certain kinds of odds, but not other kinds of odds. Those things are hard to change. But once you've understood what those are, pick a thing and just do a thing. Don't shop around. Just do a thing. Because that can be your work. And just take what you get, take what's dealt and do that. If, so, if someone had said to me when I was 15, what are you going to do? And I would say, well, I'm going to be a blogger and I'm going to invent new ways that electronic media can work. That made no sense in 1975, mm. right? This arrived. There, there was a rift in the time-space continuum that permitted me to get the pleasure of fast movement, which is one of the things I like, right? To do it without being beholden to a large team, which is one of the things I like. So with those factors in play, this is my wave. I surf this wave. And I don't think I was born to do this any more than I was born to teach style canoeing in Canada. It's what I do because that's how I defined who I was, by what I do, not the other way around. And should you love the process of creating? Or some people talk about writing and they say, I didn't enjoy writing, but I enjoyed having written. Should we enjoy the creative stage? It seems that defining who we are is almost defining who we're not as much. It's almost as important. Ruling what we're not going to be, ruling things out, finding that dark space is important to establish our own niche, it seems. Yes, and we become who we are by the hard decisions that we make. So if you are someone whose narrative is, well, I have to do it because the boss made me. Well, I have to do it because I have to pay the mortgage. You've just determined who you are. Right. And, you know, you, you posted the other day about um, Microsoft uh, supporting a, a, a climate-denying U.S. senator. And I can understand why Microsoft does it. They just buy off everybody. They can, they can afford it and figure we'll get a, a seat at the table. Yeah, except now they've also defined who they are. And they don't have to make that choice. Just like we don't have to make the choice to do everything we did at work. We can provide a different point of view. We can stand for something. We can say, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do that. And it's not the easy path, but it is the path that defines who we are. Right, 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 right. As someone's going through this and producing creative work and shipping creative work, one of the things that I think has always been helpful is an understanding of constraint, of limits. Paradoxically, sort of limits and constraints seem to make us more creative. They, they, they set us hurdles that we have to overcome. I, I used to work at Twitter and, and we used to have these twice annual hack weeks and the hack weeks were often some of the most productive, creative, imaginative times of the year and, and some of the things that people came up with were incredible. But I think the, the learning was that the creativity often came as a response to the constraints. So sometimes the limits were, okay, you have to create a product, but it has to be about non-profits or charities or you're going to create a product that has to be about location. And so people then, rather than being given the sort of an open brief, 
where it's just like, what do you want to go and create? It's like, where do you start? It's like asking a kid, what do you want to draw? But if you tell them, I want you to draw a dinosaur, then they'll draw a dinosaur. If you tell them to draw anything, they go, I don't know what to draw. So it's almost like the, the tyranny of a, a tight brief is actually incredibly liberating sometimes. Um, but we, we witnessed a lot of that. As someone who's set out to understand creativity, why is that? Well, so Clement Greenberg, uh, the great art critic, pointed out that the history of European art is the frame. That it's the picture frame that determines what a European painting is. Because it is the boundary. And it's with that boundary that the artist gets to work. It's the set of 64 Crayola colors. It's whatever you have to work with. As soon as you eliminate all the boundaries, there's nothing to lean against. You can't think outside the box because it's dark and cold. You can think along the edges of the box, but the box has to have edges. And too often, and this is one of the problems with the waves of venture capital that rushed through Silicon Valley, is they eliminated some of the essential boundaries that entrepreneurs should need to deal with, which are boundaries around time and money. Because if you have boundaries around time and money, you are forced to do creative innovation. And if you don't, then you just create junk. Yeah, def- definitely in our experience, the it was those inspirations, those th- those restrictions that that were the cause of the explosion of of ingenuity, really. One of the things that strikes me, you, you obviously talk about sort of trying to tell people that creativity is a skill, not a God-given talent. And obviously we, we reach adulthood with these ideas established in our heads. So to some extent, the job is not just to disabuse adult readers of that self-sabotage and that idea that they can't do this, but also the notion of how we might go into schools and change the perspective of education. Oh, yeah. I made, I did a rant. You can see it on TED called Stop Stealing Dreams. And I wrote a book that's free. It's been read four million times. Um, and basically, my argument is we forgot to ask what school is for. And uh, go ask a parent. Go ask the school board. They can't even answer you. And I have an answer, but I mostly have the question. What do we, what do we build school for? What it used to be for is to train compliant factory workers that Clay Shirky points out that in Manchester, the birth of the industrial revolution, uh, people were so whiplashed by having to go from the farm to the factory that instead of coffee carts that went up and down the aisles, they had gin carts and people were drunk 10 hours a day because they couldn't tolerate it. And school softens us up for that. School is about do well on the test or we will reprocess you just like a factory. Do what you're told. It's about coercion and compliance. Okay, well, if that's really what it's for, let's make it even better at that. And there are certainly countries where it's better at that than others. I don't think that's what it's for. I think it should be to teach kids to solve interesting problems and to lead. And that means every single test should be open book and open note. It means that we should be doing lectures at night by watching world-class people uh, talking, and we should do homework during the day together because that's where inquiry comes from. And it means we shouldn't reward kids for straight A's and compliance. We should reward them for hard questions and uh, the resilience to overcome challenges. So I would rewire the whole thing, but I would begin by just asking what it's for. 
It seems like if, if we are going to unlock all this extra talent, then we do need to be thinking about how we talk about creativity in schools. Do you think there's something that we could be doing with schools? Is there some way that we could adapt our message, change the way that we ask schools to prepare us for adulthood in that way? If we think about what they do when they have to make a choice is they don't make a choice. So if we look at Yale University in the US, which is um, super elite, very difficult to get in. Most of the students arrive freshman year saying they're going to become leaders, they're going to become uh, creators, they're going to become people who change the world. And far and away, the number one thing they do four years later when they graduate is investment banking and consulting. Right because they just got narrowed and narrowed and narrowed, and now there's no choice. Just follow the pack. Absolutely. Well, this is why it's such a fundamental issue. You know, we we often leave kids in a situation where they've never had to make any conscious decisions. They've learned by rote, and so they're just fundamentally unprepared for what's to come. Young adults are feeling completely ill-equipped to make the decisions we're asking of them. So let's go back to that question then. So we want kids to be more creative. What's the answer? To get them into the habit of being creative, to get them on the ha- the practice, to give them more challenges so they can be more creative? Well, isn't that how we taught them to read and write and do math mm. and understand what the capital of Bolivia is? I mean, those are things we know how to get kids to do. Well, it turns out we can teach kids a practice. We can teach them to ride a bike. We can infuse in them a desire to learn on an ongoing basis, which we don't. And when we put all of that together, it's not that you become a painter because you learn art history. It's because you paint. And then you will choose to learn art history because your painting wants you to. And we need to be able to say to a kid, here's 50 interesting problems. You can't look up the answer on Wikipedia because there is no answer. What do you got? And that feels to me like a semester's worth of work. Absolutely, yeah. And and the people who would emerge from that would be people who would be, I guess, much more willing to deal with the complexity and the uncertainty of adult life. So I think the really important part of this is that it invites us to think about creativity in a different way. Like you say, it's a skill. It's a muscle that any of us can exercise. It's a practice rather than a God-given gift. And you've got some glowing testimonials from people who've given this a go and experienced it and tested the methodologies. Have there been any comments from people who've maybe explored this that have given you comments that you didn't expect or that what surprised you from the response you've had? So I did something with this book that is sort of cheating, and I wish I could do it for every book I'd ever written, which is it took three years to create the book. But before I created the book, I created a workshop. And the workshop is an online interactive. It's not me lecturing at people. And 500 people took it. And over the course of 100 days, they exchanged uh, more than 500,000 messages back and forth with each other on this journey following along with what I was trying to teach. And so I got to watch what was working and I got to see what they were saying to each other. And I got to see the work they were creating and the stuff that was working. We did it more and the stuff that wasn't, we did it less. And that's what ended up in the book. So what I have learned from these 500 people is that streaks work that for a hundred days, each one of them published a piece of creative work. I learned that the right kind of feedback works that they got and gave more feedback every day than they had ever received in their life from each other. And I learned that if you turn a light on for people, it stays on for a really long time. 
So I'm thrilled at the glowing feedback, but I didn't have to ask for it. They just spoke up because it works. You mentioned something critical there along the way. And I guess any of us who are getting into the practice of this, then we're going to draw upon feedback that people give. And some people might be better at giving feedback than others. What is the art of giving good feedback? Well, there are different parts to it. Um, I was talking to someone the other day uh, and he was explaining that they used to have, where he used to work, they did a thing where people would come with a business idea that they were going to work on. And the smart people who were listening to them would give them something that would plus it, that would demonstrably make it better. And what they found is that as soon as they did that, people's enthusiasm for the project went down. Right. Because even though it was increasing the chances it was going to work, it was decreasing their ownership in the magic. Right. And they were going to learn it, that improvement anyway. So part of the opportunity with feedback is to realize sometimes what we need to do is amplify enrollment, not tell people the right answer. And the second part is when we know we are talking to another professional who is enrolled, we have the opportunity not to criticize the creator, but to talk about the product itself and to ask the question, if it did this instead of that, would that get you what you were seeking, the change you seek to make? And the example I give is, let's say uh, you've decided to drive to Greenwich and you're an hour into the journey and you're sort of lost. You don't want someone to come to you and encourage you to go to Greenwich. You've already decided. But directions, they might be helpful. Are you looking for the main highway? Other people who have been looking for the main highway have been going this way, and it seems to get them there. And then you make a new decision based on new information. That is really different than saying, this is pretty sloppy, because that is a criticism of the creator. It is not helpful directions. Okay. You mentioned increase enrollment there. What what do you mean by that? Yeah. So thank you for giving me the chance to clarify that. Enrollment used to mean emotional commitment to the journey. Now it just means you signed a piece of paper and you're in school. But Mm. if you are enrolled in riding a bicycle, you will fall off and you will get back on. You will fall off and you will get back on. If you are enrolled in being a football fan and your team loses, you will still come to the next game because you already decided to be on that journey. And the problem with traditional education is the only thing that they're doing is trading a diploma for attendance. Right. And that's not where learning happens. Learning happens when we are emotionally enrolled and choosing to actually become someone else. It's really interesting going back to the school thing. Schools really don't seek about creating that enrollment, do they? If you wanted to raise kids to be cricket fans, what you would not do is have them read the history of cricket, then take tests in cricket, and then uh, read more books about cricket, and then one day say, okay, you, you've, you've passed all that. Now you're allowed to go to a cricket match, or now you're allowed to play. You would never do that, right? What you do is you expose people to a feeling and then they choose to want that feeling again. And then all you have to do is get out of their way. More with my conversation with Seth Godin after this. Today's episode is sponsored by Yext Answers. If there's one thing this year has taught us is that your website is your only pandemic-proof asset. But... 
not if it's broken. You see, most websites have all the form, but lack a very critical function, search. There's either no way to search, or if there is, the experience is so bad that you can't even get answers to basic questions. This sounds like your website, Yext Answers can help. Yext Answers offers a best-in-class search engine to your website so your customers can get an official answer to every question. That means more transactions and fewer expensive calls to customer service. You can try Yext Answers for free. Just go to yext.co.uk forward slash eat sleep. That's yext, Y-E-X-T, .co.uk forward slash eat sleep to learn more about how Yext Answers can help your website be your greatest asset. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now back to my conversation with Seth Godin. This year, sort of thinking about this year in aggregate, a lot of us spent a lot of time alone and a lot of time with our own thoughts And I guess to some extent, when we're thinking about fostering creativity, that period of reflective isolation could be a potent way to set us up for some creative explosion to come. Do you think we're going to emerge from this grand experiment, this big pause, with an explosion in ingenuity, inventiveness, creativity? We always do, but it's still going to be very unevenly distributed. And it's going to be unevenly distributed because the amount of uh, available wealth in the world went down a lot over the course of a year. And when you're hungry and you can uh, feed your family by doing brain dead work, you might choose to do that. And it's not up to me to say you're wrong to do that. Um, That this level of insulation from our most basic needs is critical. If we're going to take the emotional risks to do that kind of thing that might not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written about shopping in the poorest places on earth. Like the poorest people on earth buy things all the time. They buy wood for fuel or they buy kerosene or they buy food, but they don't shop ever because shopping is risky. Shopping is buying something you've never bought before because it's fun. And if you're making $3 a day, there's no shopping in your life. And the same thing is true for the kind of creativity I'm talking about. If you are worried about keeping your job, then all you're doing is kissing up to the boss, as opposed to saying, what can I do to challenge this status quo to make things better? So some people will do that because the status quo is in such disarray that this is a great moment to challenge the status quo. You know, I was just looking at um, some stats the other day. The cost of a solar power plant has gone down like, 80%, 80%, some mm. huge number, whereas the cost of a coal power plant hasn't changed at all. Well, that means the status quo is different now. Someone's going to walk into that industry with nothing to lose and change things because they have nothing to lose. And um, I think that for the kind of person who's enrolled in your journey, who's listening to this podcast, the real opportunity is not go quit your job and start over. The opportunity is to look your boss and your boss's boss in the eye and say, yeah, I'm going to do it this way. I'll take responsibility. I'll take the blame. You can have the credit if you want, 
but I want to explore the frontier because there's more frontier right now than there was a year ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, if someone's bold and willing to fail, then there's huge opportunity for everyone in, in the, the world right now. And the punchline is the people who aren't willing to fail are failing. You know, go ask a travel agent. Oh, you, you can't because there aren't any travel agents left. They all did what they were supposed to, and then they were gone, right? That the person who's working at a, a petrol station isn't going to be working there in 10 years. They're just not. And so you can fit in all the way, and you're still going to fail. So you might as well at least enjoy the journey of making things better on the way. So we're almost out of time. So tomorrow is another day, another blog post. So that's it. You've got to do it all again tomorrow. You've got to create it again tomorrow. Where do your ideas come from? When you're sitting there with a blank document, a blank sheet of paper tomorrow, how do you get going again tomorrow? My method is, is really simple. It's not for everyone. Um, it begins with my streak. I will have a blog post tomorrow, not because it's my best blog post ever, but because it's tomorrow. That's critical. I made that decision once. I don't have to make it again. And what that means is I don't have a choice of no blog post or this blog post. I have a choice of what's the best blog post I've got right now. And that opens the door for me. And then the second thing about my method is if there's something in the world that is working and I don't know why, I need to be able to explain it. And so refrigerators are not a magic trick. I understand how Freon gas works. I understand why the lights in my office went on when I flipped the switch. But if I don't understand why uh, revolving doors aren't more popular, or if I don't understand why the Tesla was adopted in some places or not others, then I inquire and I inquire until I find something that gives me firm footing. And I assert it. And that is good for five blog posts right there. <laughs> Fantastic. And another thing we could teach kids as well, you know, that desire to understand things, that desire to unpick them so we ex- we understand them and we can explain them is something we could definitely teach kids. Final question for you, Seth. I guess as we're coming to the end of the year, is there anything that you've experienced, ri- witnessed, read, watched that you would recommend to listeners reflecting on the year? What would you recommend? Um, okay, so in the world of creativity, uh, the war of art, by Steve Pressfield and The Art of Possibility by Ben and Roz Zander are the two f- fundamental texts. Uh, if you want an audio book that will turn on lights for you, Just Kids by Patti Smith is magical. It's an autobiography. Um, the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, I think will help people understand why we are so confused about race and why it's a worldwide problem, not just in my country. Um, and I hope, I don't, uh, run the Akimbo workshops anymore. It's an independent uh, company now that is a B Corp in the public interest. But check out the workshops at akimbo.com, A K I M B O, because they change people's lives. And that's why I started it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, look, I've put all the links to those in the show notes. And that gives people who are looking to do a bit of me time, a bit of learning time over the break or into the new year gives them some inspiration of what to look for. Thank you so much. It's such a, uh, that's such a generous list of things to share. Thank you. Well, uh, we've come to the end. Thank you. I just want to thank you again for the the time that you've given today. And it's been just a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, thank you. Thank so you, much. Bruce. I learned a lot talking to you today. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you, Seth. The book, The Practice, is already out. It's um, I found it a really tricky read. It's one of those books where it sort of feels like a series of blog posts where I found it difficult to know what I was being asked to follow. Um, and, you know, my first instinct when I was reading it was to think there was something wrong with me, actually. that I was like, why, am I, why is this not clicking with me? Um, and it could well be that I was just in the, the wrong frame of mind for, for those sort of six hours or whatever that I read it. Um, but, you know, Seth's always a stimulating, interesting guy. I think the, the reason why his skill is so supreme is, you know, he's, he's often got really colourful stories to permeate his his points of learning. And uh, so because of that, you know, he's, he's, always, he's always a character worth listening to. So thank you for listening. I appreciate your, your company. Back with another episode next week. <laughs>